I'm going to let you guys much. listen to a little of my workout music this morning. Oh, let's hear it. Is it Gregorian chant? Right, careless whisper. Why do you say that? Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to The Debrief, a weekly podcast from your friends here at Sandals Church, where Pastor Matt is going to be hooking you up with real answers to your tough questions from the Bible. I'm your friend, Justin Pardee. Right over here, we got Stephanie Keen. What's up, friends? Glad to be here. And sitting on the couch, exactly, Pastor Matt the Wise. Yes. Mm -hmm. Ooh. Yeah. Mental race. I listened to the sermon this weekend and I thought I would just drop that in there. Speaking That's good because Stephanie got mentally fired today. Oh, oh I'm sorry to hear know. that. I'm sorry to hear that. You have good days, you have bad days. Well, you know what? I hope it's not too awkward for you to do one more podcast before you go. Eh, yep. I'll be fine. We're glad to have you. It's only mental firing, so. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, speaking of just people that are wise, are some of my friends who just left us some five-star reviews. Yes. Listen, you can go to the iTunes store, leave a five-star review. That is super helpful for people trying to find the Debrief Podcast. Or if you just want to go to our Facebook page and write something nice there uh, on our wall, we'll receive that as well. Do you still call it a wall on Facebook? Is that sure. a thing the, on our yeah. Facebook wall? You can leave a thing on our Facebook page, say something nice about us, and we'll get you here on the show. We got a great review. This one is from Don in Santee. Where is Santee? Um, Santee to be determined. I don't yeah, know. I don't know. Santee. Mm. Oh, well, Boy, I, put a, I put a kink in that one. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> that's, that's. While you recover, Santee is a suburb of San Diego. Okay. Ooh. All right. Well, this first review comes from Don in Santee. A suburb of San Diego. Yeah. Don says, thank you to Pastor Matt and the debrief team for applying biblical principles to everyday principles. That's what makes these episodes very real and meaningful. Mm. So if we're going to do a new theme song, it's going to be principles on principles. Yes. I love it. I think there's something catchy in there. We got another there's review from the, from the uh, kid, good kid tooth doctor. I love good intelligent conversation. That's the reason I love this podcast so much. Wow. I just, I just love great. I just love great humor. I feel challenged every episode and it's been encouraging me to not just read my Bible, uh, but study what the words are really saying. Also, it's the only good reason for Wednesday morning traffic jams on the freeway. So thank you, kid tooth doctor. One more from Cosmic 95. Yes. I'm going to take this one. It's, it's okay. a pretty long one. I love pastor Matt. Oh, I love, what was his name? Cosmic? Cosmic 95. Mm -hmm. Right on. Yeah. I'm feeling a little bit left out on that one, but I want you to know okay. we still appreciate the review. We appreciate that review. So, yeah. hey, in addition to reviews, we love answering your questions. If you got tough questions about the Bible or Pastor Matt's sermons from the weekend, please send them in here on the show. We'd love to get them on the air. Just find our page, go search the Debrief Podcast on Facebook and send us a message. We got a whole bunch of tough questions uh, to go with. And this very first one comes from John on Facebook. That's right. So John writes, in Sunday's sermon, you talked about how gaining wisdom is learned by studying the Bible and knowing how and when to apply it. I've struggled my whole life with ADD and find it difficult to read and then being able to extract information in the future from what I've read. I've been relying on what I learned from Sandals sermons, small group, and recently listening to the debrief. You've mentioned how you struggle with ADD, Pastor Matt, and was hoping you could provide some insight on how I could better study and learn God's word. I thought about squirrels three times in the middle of that question. Yeah. Yes. Well, what I would say is, is do what you're doing. So don't, don't make yourself feel guilty. All of us learn differently. Uh, some of us learn kinesthetically through, you know, experiencing things. Some of us are auditory learners. We, we learn from listening and, and others can learn in a traditional way. And so what I would say is keep doing what you're doing. Keep listening because there's nothing wrong with that. There's no shame in that. God has designed us all differently. And so don't torture yourself trying to be something you're not in terms of how God has created you to learn. So keep doing everything that you're doing, listen to everything you can, and I think you're gonna grow. Because if you're like me, I learn 
uh, when I learn something audibly or somebody is sharing something, I never forget it. But if when I was younger, especially, and I had to read it, I would struggle with comprehension, which is reading and then being able to retain that information and tell somebody about what you've read in an informi- informational way. So keep doing what you're doing. Um, you know, I've gone through uh, a lot of counseling for ADD, specific training um, that literally helped me with my focusing, but that was expensive and tedious and uh, not always fun. So keep doing what you're doing and uh, praise God that you have a desire to know God and God will meet you where you are. So, Okay, so during your sermon two weekends ago on Acts chapter 14, you talked about really prioritizing God and even doing that on our social media profiles. And Natalie wrote in and asked, are selfies inherently a form of self-worship? They can be. And so let me just say this. I mean, everybody takes a selfie uh, every now and then. It's just it's just a little overwhelming when literally on your uh, Instagram page or your Facebook page or, or your, your Twitter, whatever that is, it's just constant pictures of just yourself. So I would just say, settle down on the selfies every now and then they're fun. They're cute. They're fun. You know, I like seeing, um, you know, every now and then Stephanie will take a selfie or you do every now and then, and that's fine, but don't become so obsessed with self where literally every time you park your car, you got to do duck lips and take a picture of yourself and post it. That's a problem. So, um, you know, but it is, you know, it's, it's a nice way. Uh, social media is a nice way for us to keep in touch with people that we are not able to see all the time on a regular basis. So, no, they're not inherently evil, but we have to all admit our society is a bit self-consumed. And um, besides, I never think I look good in a selfie. I have not figured out how to make myself look good in a selfie. So oh, they actually just true. make we me feel like great. I'm dead. So. Well, I just took one you know, you and did. you're in the back corner talking about selfies. And I think you got a nice, nice little- Yeah, we got to post that look. picture. Yeah, we'll put it a up selfie while Matt is talking about selfies. Yeah. Well, great question. Well. Thank you. <laughs> all right. This next question comes from Michael and he says, how can I change my thinking and have a relationship with God based on who he is as opposed to who I want him to be? Yeah. And that's why scripture is so important because all of us have a, a view of God and an understanding of God. And, and some of that is right because uh, God has impressed himself upon us, but much of it is wrong. And so what we need to do is we need to read scripture or, you know, like our, our, our first question, uh, we need to listen to scripture being read and scripture being talked about. Because again, when you go back to the book of Genesis, which I'm hoping we're going to get to maybe in January, God has to reveal himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't know who he is. They don't know what he's like. And this continues throughout the book of Exodus. What really, what people don't really think about what Exodus is about, Exodus is about pulling Jewish people out of an Egyptian culture. So they're mm-hmm. not just being, they're not just slaves there, but they're immersed in that culture. And God mm-hmm. is saying, you must be radically different than the Egyptians with which you were raised. And I'm going to pull you out of this. And I'm going to teach you about myself by teaching you um, these laws and these principles so that you reflect me. And uh, we're going to do things differently. You know, in Egypt, you worked every single day. In the promised land, you're going to work six days a week and you're going to rest on the seventh day because God says, I rested. And you do this mimicking me because you worship me and I am important in your life. So you're going to become like me. And so God is constantly revealing you know, who he is throughout his scripture. And the good news for us is we've come way, way, way down, you know, the end of the storyline. So we get to learn who God is, you know, through the Kings and through their struggles, through the prophets and their struggles. And then ultimately God is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And we get to learn about who God is from the person and nature of Jesus. And then this is why it's so important. Don't just stop with Jesus. Like I hear People say stupid things all the time. Like I'm just interested in the red letters, which what they mean is I'm just interested in what Jesus said. Mm-hmm. And that's ridiculous. We need to be we need to be interested in everything that the scripture says because Jesus speaks 
to the Jewish contemporary culture in which he lives in, but the gospel doesn't stay there. Like we're in Acts 15, it's going into Gentile culture. And that's why we need the apostle Paul to help us understand what does it mean to follow Christ in a non-Jewish context? What does my life look like in a world that doesn't know God and doesn't have a history of following God? And so that's why the epistles, the letters of Paul, the letters of Peter, you know, the letter of James is so radically important for life. So we're not just interested in the red letters. We're interested in all of the letters because they're all inspired and they all reveal God's heart for us. Okay, awesome. Uh, okay, next follow-up question here comes from Sherilyn. She says, it sounds like Paul and Barnabas are still going to Jewish synagogues on Sabbath days to teach as they travel around on their journeys. When did the followers of Jesus stop going to synagogue on Saturdays and start meeting regularly on Sundays? Well, at first, I, so that question is kind of a setup. So really what they did is they didn't stop meeting on Saturdays and start worshiping on Sundays. The early church did both. Okay. So they would go to synagogue and meet with the Jews and often preach with the Jews, but then they would gather together with Christians on Sundays because Christians wouldn't go to synagogue. They would gather together on Sundays. And so really the apostles did both because the synagogue was both a great place to talk about God and a mission field to tell people about Jesus. But they also have non-Jewish people who meet and gather together on Sundays. And so the transition over time takes place because we need to think of the Bible in terms of uh, two creative acts of God. So Genesis, right, reveals the creative act of God. So on six days, God works, and on the seventh day, he rested, and he created the creation. The reason that we worship Jesus on Sundays is because it represents the first day of a new week. So Sunday in the Jewish calendar is the first day. Saturday is the last day. And so when Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, Revelation says, behold, I make all things new. Mm -hmm. So what Jesus Christ is doing is he is creating something new. And we celebrate this new creation in which we partake in on Sundays because we're new creatures. We're new creatures in Christ. The old is past, the new has come. And we celebrate that. And we celebrate the most important uh, day in the history of the world, which is Sunday because Christ rose from the dead. So it was a slow transition for a period of time. So we're in Acts 15, Jews and Gentiles are still meeting and worshiping together. As we see that causes a lot of conflict and a lot of problems because Jews culturally are radically different from Gentiles. Just like every culture is radically different. Even within American culture, we have Hispanic culture, which is very different from, you know, my white culture, but even within white culture, you know, are you Russian uh, descent? Are you from England? Is your family from the South? Are you Northwestern? So even within white culture, whatever that means, right? There's differences. And so then we have black culture, we have American Indian culture, we have American Asian culture, you have all these cultures and it's different in every area. And so it's difficult for those two things to coexist long-term. And so eventually they split. And what happens is the Gentiles stop worshiping on Saturdays and just ultimately just gathered together as Gentiles on Sundays, recognizing that God has done something new that has caused them to be able to be saved. So it really isn't an overnight decision. It's the reality of the ever-growing racial tension and cultural tension hmm. between Gentiles and Jews. The principle still stands. We need to make sure that we devote one day a week for rest and the worship of God. Um, like for example, for me, that is not Saturday and Sundays mm -hmm. because those are work days for yeah. me. So I my Sabbath is on Fridays where I check out, I close the world off, spend some time with God, and I do things that are very relaxing. And I do, the Bible says, no work. And so I make sure that I rest so that I can be in a good place for you guys when you hear me on Saturday and Sundays um, to lead us in, in a time of worship. And so the principle still remains, but you know, the church switched over time. But again, 
even in the book of Acts, as we progress, you're going to see the apostle Paul says, we gathered on the Lord's day, mm-hmm. which is not Saturday. It was right. Sunday, okay. the day he rose. So in a follow-up to her follow-up question, Sherilyn also asked, at what point in history did the Jews quit sacrificing animals for sins um, or lambs during the Passover celebration? Yeah. And so th- the answer to that is kind of tricky. They quit sacrificing multiple times in their history. So- oh. Yeah, there, there's times where the Jews couldn't even read the scriptures. They literally, they found the books of the oh, Bible. Right. Mm-hmm. They found them in the temple and they didn't know what they were. And they had to find somebody, get this, they're Jews. They had to find somebody who can read Hebrew because they no longer read Hebrew. They couldn't write it. They couldn't understand it. So they have to find a scribe that can tell them what it said. And then the scribe reads the Bible out loud to the king. And he's like, uh-oh, <laughs> we've completely blown it. So you know, sacrifices were in and were out. And, and you see, even in the book of Kings, the book of first Chronicles, and even in the prophets, they quit sacrificing to God and they sacrificed to Baal, they sacrificed to Asherah, they sacrificed to all these other gods because Jews were not historically faithful. So, you know, one of the questions that people ask me when in Israel is, is how could the Jews have rejected Christ? Well, the answer is they rejected God all throughout their history. Mm-hmm. That That's part of their history is, and that's why God calls them stiff necked people. Yeah. Um, because they, they, they are stubborn to the will of God. So there were periods where they stopped sacrificing. Certainly when the temple is there, they are still participating in animal sacrifice during the time and age of Jesus. So in AD 70, when the temple is destroyed by the Romans, there, there may have been a, pr- a brief renewal of that for maybe another 80 years, but in 160, uh, Rome comes in again and they absolutely hammer the place and it never, it never comes back and it's never used again. And that's why... Uh, Sadducees, the the religion of Sadduceeism within Judaism just fades away, it disappears because their faith in God was completely surrendered, centered around the um, temple. And so when the temple's gone, they're gone. And so Pharisees, which is where really where Jesus came from, their faith was centered around the word of God. So they didn't need the temple of God. And so it continues to thrive. And really modern day Judaism looks a whole lot more like uh, kind of the theological framework from which Jesus came. Right. Hmm. Okay, so this next follow-up question comes from Brittany and it's about your sermon from this last week and where you really focused in on conflict. And she says, I have a relationship with my mom, but that's only because we don't talk about any issues. And it's been that way my whole life. I've tried talking to her in the past and it leads to horrible arguments. She's never wrong, even when presented with the truth. (laughs) I've been hurt by her and find it easier to have a relationship with her by not talking to her about things I have an issue with. Am I wrong for leaving things be for the sake of a relationship? Yeah, well, man, my heart goes out to you. I, I think relating... Um, to parents is always a challenge because the relationship changes. Um, the reality is, um, I know even my parents struggle, you know, with me being a pastor and a spiritual leader. And in some cases, maybe what I know about God has gone beyond where they are. And that's gotta be hard because they knew me when I couldn't walk and I couldn't talk and I couldn't, you know, read and, and all of the struggles that I had. I think, I think that the transition from parents seeing their children as adults is a difficult transition. My wife and I are going through that now because our children are not children anymore. They're adults with their own minds and their own thoughts. And we need to learn to respect and, and value that as well as challenge them because you don't know everything when you're 19, 20 years old and you still are learning. So let me just say this is I don't know your situation personally. And so I want to be very, very careful speaking into a situation that I don't know. I'm assuming that you're being truthful and that what you're sharing is accurate. What I would say is this, is you can only have real conversations with people who want to be real. Otherwise you are, you are having an invitation to conflict. And so what you really need to do is you need to say, I can have, I can only have 
a relationship that is as authentic as the person that I'm in relationship with can handle. And here's the reality. Everybody has different levels of authenticity. Right. Some people are not comfortable. And some of that's an age difference. You know, for example, my parents grew up in a day and age where it wasn't their personal vision to be real with themselves, God and others. Mm -hmm. And so sandals is very, very different. And in some ways, very, very threatening to the way in which they grew up. Like for example, my dad was a pastor. If my dad shared the kind of things like the story that I shared this weekend where I yelled at my family and smashed my chair, my dad would have got fired that Sunday after church because you, know. you can't have a pastor who's imperfect. I mean, so he would never have been able to be that authentic. Uh, it would have cost him his job. And so that's just the culture in which he grew up in. And so it forces you to fake it. That's just the reality. Um, I think that authenticity is something that's new. It's a new idea. We realize that culturally as Americans, we're very, very fake and that's transitioned into the church. And so being real is really, really hard and very, very scary for a lot of people because people feel like they have to be perfect. And we know as Christians that that's impossible. And here's the beauty of Jesus is Jesus is made real safe because we know that we're loved, not because of what we do, but because of what he did. And we can freely talk about our weaknesses and our uh, issues at hand. And so I just would say, you need to love and, and love your mom and dad and honor them because that's what the Bible says to do. But, you know, save your authentic questions and, and, and conversations for your community and for people who want to live relationally at that level. Pray for your mom, love your mom, um, you know, and, and hope in the name of Jesus that one day she will be comfortable enough with herself to be able to engage in some kind of real relationship. And, um, you know, at a level that you're comfortable with. And, and, and just so you know, there's many people in my life that I wish had a deeper capacity. I wish the swimming pool went a little deeper, mm. but the reality is it doesn't. So do I sit in judgment? I mean, then that means I'm in sin. What I got to do is love them where they're at. And if we're at the shallow end of the pool, we're at the shallow end of the pool. And, and in some relationships, that means we talk about sports and politics and everything else that doesn't matter. And you don't ever talk about what's going on personally. So my heart breaks for you. Um, you know, Jesus wants you to love your parents, wants you to honor your parents and appreciate them for where they are. And I'm just so sad that you can't have a deeper relationship, but ask God for it because God can do miracles in human hearts. Mm -hmm. And uh, the key is to make your mom feel safe and loved and not criticized. That's huge. So just try to love her. So I'm sorry. Thank you for your honest, honest question. Seriously. Mm -hmm. Okay. One last follow-up question here. And this one is from Esperanza. She says, my husband believes in God, but we argue back and forth on evolution and what the Bible tells us. He asked me how I think it's possible that only two people, Adam and Eve, populated the world. And uh, because of all this, thinks that everything in the Bible cannot be fact as it was written by men. How do I address this? And to be honest, at first I got angry that probably did not help him to believe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Your anger is not going to help him believe. You know, you never convert anybody by yelling at him or, you know, being impatient. I think he has some great questions. And so, you know, we're going to try to get maybe into the book of Genesis in January. So I'm processing through and praying for that. So you guys can uh, pray with me, at, at, you know, as I try to figure out where God is leading us. But Genesis is a difficult book to interpret and to understand. And this is what I would say as Christians, here's where we need to plant the flag. So we talked about Sunday on compromise. When can we compromise and when can't we compromise? Here's what we can't compromise on. God made it. Genesis one says God made it. Mm -hmm. Where can we compromise on? How did God make it? Mm -hmm. There's a creative process that is described in Genesis one as a six day event of creation. Uh, part of the challenges of that is, you know, God creates during a day before the sun is created, 
And if there's no sun and there's no earth revolving around the sun, then what don't we have? You don't have a literal 24 hour day Mm -hmm. because a literal 24 hour day is literally the earth circling around the sun. And that's why the sun rises and sets because we're, we're circling around that as we orbit around the sun Mm -hmm. as the center of our universe. So are they literal days? You know, many people, you know, believe that they are. I, I don't, I don't care ultimately where you land on that. And that could make me, you know, some people think that I'm compromised or whatever. I just don't think it matters. I think the point of Genesis is this, God made it. And what I would say is human beings had to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. So why does the number two bother you? He, he probably would just be just offended if it said 10 or a hundred or a thousand. I mean, the reality is creation had to start somewhere. And it's the old adage, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, without God, neither, neither come. Mm -hmm. You don't have a chicken or an egg. Something has to create something. And so what the Bible is telling us, it's telling us the story of human history through the creative act of God as he creates humanity. So this is what I would say, you know, to your husband. Yeah, the earth is dated by most scientists to be millions and millions of years old. The reality is that homo sapiens, that's us, that's you, you guys Mm -hmm. are homo sapiens. We don't show up until about 10,000 years ago. There's no homo sapiens on earth. There's no skeletal evidence. There's no, and you know, everything they teach you in school about the, you know, the guy that's an ape and then he crawls and he gets tall. All of that's been disproven. We're not related to those things in any way, shape or form. Homo sapiens are radically different in terms of our thinking capacity and the way that we exist. So all of a sudden about 10,000 years ago, this new species called homo sapiens showed up of which we are related to. And it seems to indicate that, you know, depending upon how, how you date things, scripture is gonna land right around somewhere during that time. So there's a great book called um, Genesis. Oh man, it's written by Dr. Selhammer. Is it Unbound? Yes, Genesis mm-hmm. Unbound. So I would read that. Um, he is the, the most brilliant Hebrew scholar uh, on earth right now. He's actually fighting for his life. He's battling a, a disease and we need to pray for him. Uh, and he's no longer able to uh, be on his own. He's actually in a rest home, but he is a genius And he wrote a book called Genesis Unbound because his daughter was going to MIT and she had all these questions. And so um, he just let the text speak for itself. And um, he seems to indicate that the Bible does not have a problem uh, with evolution whatsoever. Mm -hmm. God did something creatively within six days and he has his own approach. So here's as Christians, God made it. Exactly how that process happened, you know, is the word, the Hebrew word yom, does it mean 24 hours? Yes, normally. But could it mean a period of time? Absolutely. So um, so hopefully we'll get into that a little bit more in um, January, but that's a great, great question. And again, evolution is not your husband's problem. Sin is, and that's just the reality. And so that's where you need to deal with him on. And so don't use sin by trying to get him out of his sin by being angry. You've got to be compassionate. And the truth is human beings started somewhere. I don't know why two is a problem. Fair enough. It's definitely the bare minimum to get some more coming out there. Yeah, it takes two to tango. That is That it does. Or at least it used to. Now with science, it doesn't, <laughs> but it used to. Well, hey, uh, those are some good stuff. We love getting your questions here on the show. If you've got a question uh, for Pastor Matt, tough question about the Bible or one of his sermons, send them on in. Hit us up on Facebook. Send a message to The Debrief Podcast, and uh, we'll get it here on the show. So let's jump over into questions from Acts 15. But before we deep dive in there, it's time for a debrief 
shared fun experience. Are you guys ready? It's a brand new segment on the show of oh a gosh. shared fun experience. Why am I nervous? I am. Don't be, because this is awesome. Now listen, over the last several weeks, I've had a lot of people coming up to me and telling me that they really enjoy listening to the first few minutes of the debrief with their particular podcast podcast app, slowing us down to half oh speed. Gosh. They like slowing us down to half speed because then we sound like we're all just completely drunk. And smash out of our minds. So here's what we're going to do. If you don't know how to use your podcast app and be fancy and slow it down, Producer Kelly, can you drop in uh, some slowed down podcast for everyone to listen to right now? In the meantime, I'm going to play you the open from last week's episode. Pastor Matt, you're going to love this. This is last week at half speed. He does. He is constantly looking up and you kind of look at him and go, will I contact Jesus? Do you feel like he looks a little like me? I think he looks a little like me. Like, look at his nose. Like, we have oh. a similar <laughs> nose. You know what? Before, I was just thinking, come on, man, that looks like Jesus. And then he said nose. And now the I'm no all, Look yep. at the nose and the yep. big lip. <laughs> it sounds like we are stoned. I was like, man, drunk or like, super high. Stuck you in the room. Oh man. Oh, so hey. awesome. So awesome. So hey, to some of our re- re- oh regular gosh. listeners, just encourage you to go back and uh, maybe listen to all the old debriefs to the uh, the opening of each of those at a uh, half speed for. My some, question some is, fun. who thought we need to slow this down? Because we got some pot smokers in you our church. Know, I'll tell you the most recent person I heard this from, uh, Pastor Adam Workman, the <laughs> leader of discipleship here at Sandals Church. But I've heard it from a lot of people. It's pretty fun. It's pretty fun. Uh, anyways. It's nice to know that people are making fun of my voice. Yeah. <laughs> They're not making fun of me. They're just, they're just joining an experience. Exactly. That's why say. we called it the debrief shared fun experience. Mm. Uh, it was, it was uh, great to share that all. All right. Well, let's continue on sharing fun experiences and jump into Acts chapter 15. Pastor Matt, you did a great job in your sermon this weekend, really kind of teaching us how we can apply. Thank um, you. Some Second mental race in one episode. Oh, man. Justin's going for it today. Yeah. Somebody's broke. I'm super excited to go on mental vacation after this. If I get enough races, I'll take a holiday. There's nothing like a mental vacation. It's <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, I think I actually took one of those during your uh, question on Genesis. Um, oh, <laughs> does that does that discount now yeah. both of his mental races? I yeah, sure hope so. That was a mental firing. <laughs> yeah, welcome, welcome to the club, bro. Okay, so your sermon was super awesome. We did some practical lessons learned on conflict from looking at the first conflict in the early church, but there's also a bunch of other really interesting kind of historical relational stuff that we can look at and learn. So let's jump into Acts chapter 15, the very beginning. Yes, we're going to start off with verse two, where it says, finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The question being, do new converts from Gentiles have to become like Jews? So was it normal for the church to send a committee of people to Jerusalem to make decisions on major conflicts like this? No, this was not normal. This is uncharted territory. So you got to remember, the church is having to figure this out. So here's the challenge, right? So Jesus says, go into all the world and make, you know, disciples, Mm -hmm. baptizing everyone, you know, and teach them everything I taught you. But he doesn't tell them how to do it. They got to figure it out. And so, so here's part of, you know, graduating from, you know, a baby follower of Jesus to a real follower of Jesus is how do you, how do what does it mean to actually live out the sermon in your marriage as a single person at work, in your home? These are all complex, you know, uh, issues because life is complex. And so the church is having to figure this out and they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they couldn't solve it on their own. Now think about this. You got Paul and Barnabas, geniuses, 
they can't figure it out on their own. So they decided, well, let's go back to Jerusalem to make sure that we haven't gotten derailed here and to make sure that, you know, we are still walking in line with, you know, the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so they go back to Jerusalem in a committee form and they send representatives to try to figure this thing together. And this is like the first church council. This is where we get this idea of all the bishops gathered together and what, you know, what do we think? And you're going to see this, the council of Nicaea in the future. You're going to see many councils that are coming up where they say, who is Jesus Christ? You know, what is our, our, our belief on the nature of the triune God? Who is the Holy Spirit? What is the church? And all of these ideas are going to come from this first gathering where they're like, we don't know what to do. Let's get together and figure this out. And I just think there's such wisdom there, man. There's going to be things where you don't know what to do. And so you need to enlarge you know, the, the area mm-hmm. of intelligence in which mm-hmm. you live and invite others to speak into this. And they're like, okay, maybe the guys in Jerusalem know because they've been following God for, you know, a couple thousand years. So let's go there and let's ask them. And so they send some representatives back to Jerusalem to figure this out. So no, uncharted territory, they don't know what to do. Okay, so in verses four and five, it says, when they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law. So it kind of seems like in terms of bringing this issue to the, the council here, that the Pharisees beat them to the punch by bringing up circumcision and setting that up as an issue. Was this already a, a a really big issue that the church was facing? I don't know if it was a really big issue in terms of the whole church. I think when I read the book of Acts, I think it's a small group of people causing a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. And you see this throughout the world. It's a small group of people in a church that kills a church, that run off a pastor, that cause all kinds of problems. I think this is is in the minority. And the reason I think that is because Peter seems to be pretty clearly on the side of Paul and Barnabas. And James seems to be pretty clearly ultimately on the side of, side of Paul and Barnabas. And they actually, in the letter that they send say, don't be harassed by these people anymore. This is the official position of the church. And they send this letter out. So, but it was an issue. It was an issue that they had to deal with. And the fundamental question is to follow Jesus, do I have to become Jewish? That's the question. The answer is no, you don't. You have to follow Jesus. And there's going to be some compromise there mm-hmm. uh, that they have to, uh, not be a you know complete jerks to Jewish people and be offensive to them, but you know I think this is a small minority that's causing a lot of problems, and ultimately, what they want is they want you know um, they want to continue to be Jewish. But what Peter says is is why why would we put this on people when we we couldn't do this ourselves? And so I think it's it's pretty unanimous, and everybody agrees with James that no, you don't need to do this, right? Okay, so verses six through seven say, the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them. So I think this is interesting. We have apostles, we have elders, we got Peter playing a role, Paul and Barnabas are here, the Pharisees are coming in. What is the overall leadership and decision-making structure of the church at this time? Because it seems complex. Yeah, it's changing. So when Jesus starts the church, he starts the church on the foundation of the 12 apostles. So Judas commits suicide. They replaced him with Mattathias and we have 12 Mm -hmm. Um, and and there's the 12 apostles. But remember, James is assassinated by Herod, but he's not replaced. So it's interesting that the 12 apostles is not some like eternal principle, this ruling class of 12 forever. And and that's important, um, you know, because we're not continually connected to these 12 apostles. We see new leadership arising within the context of churches and these are called elders. Mm -hmm. And so in Jerusalem, what we see is a change of the guard the apostles are becoming less and less authoritative in Jerusalem. And eventually 
you're not even going to hear about them even being present in Jerusalem. Hmm. James is going to be the spiritual leader. James the wise is the nickname that he has given and he raises up and he oversees the elder. So he is the highest ranking leader within the Jerusalem church. So we have apostles, we have brothers, we have the leaders from Antioch that are there. Mm -hmm. Paul and Barnabas represent them, but there's also some people that have come with them from Antioch. So we have this big conglomeration and they're all working together to try to resolve the issue. So Peter speaks into it. Paul and Barnabas are gonna speak into it. The Pharisees, they get they get a voice. I mean, they get they get to share their concerns about these people needing to convert to Judaism to be saved. And then ultimately what's interesting is James decides. And so here's what's bizarre. Peter is in charge of the church according to Jesus, but now it's shifted. The authority now is James and it's very, very clear. Mm-hmm. So Peter speaks and, and doesn't challenge the decision of James, but James ultimately makes the decision that Peter's right. And so it's just really, really interesting that the dynamic of church leadership is changing. And this is what's so important for everybody. Maybe you're a young seminary student and you're listening to this is everybody wants to think that the, the leadership structure of the church is forever fixed. What I want you to see in the book of Acts is that it's continuing to morph and change as it needs to deal with the issues that the church will face because of its continued growth mm-hmm. and cultural uh, new realities that the church is facing. Okay, so in verses 10 through 11, and Peter tells the apostles and the elders, why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved by this, the same way, by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. So when Peter talks about a yoke that even their ancestors couldn't bear, what is does he mean? Is that sunny side up? Is this a... Is this a yeah, we're talking no. eggs? No, Jesus talked about the same thing. He says, come to me all who are heavy burdened and I will give you rest. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the yoke is the piece of equipment that goes over the mule or ox's neck and it allows them to uh, produce or the work in the field. Pull the plow. Yeah, pull the whatever. plow. Gotcha. So what he's saying is, the law has put something on our neck. And so here we gotta be really, really careful here because if, we're, if we misinterpret this text, what we're gonna say is everything in the Old Testament, we don't have to do. And so what I would say to that is, okay, you tell me which of the 10 commandments you are free to break. You, you know, can you make an idol? Can you I'm not, not worship the one true God? You are you allowed to lie, stuff. steal, cheat, whatever? You know, bear fault witnesses, adultery, okay. So that we gotta be really, really careful. So the yoke that God wants to put on our shoulders, it is a burden, but it is light. Mm. And it makes us effective at accomplishing the work that God has for us. So the yoke that Peter is talking about here is the full Jewish yoke of what it means to be ritually a Jew and what it means to be morally a Jew. And so typically when we look at laws, we need to ask ourselves this question, is God, is what God's teaching me in the Old Testament, is this a moral issue or is this a ritual issue? Mm -hmm. And so we don't have to become ritual Jews. We don't have to do things religiously that make us Jewish. However, there are moral principles, eternal truths that are right and wrong. So we gotta be careful that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Do you know where that saying comes from, by the way? Uh, I'm guessing throwing babies out. Yeah, Yeah, it's an actual real saying. Because in the wild west, you would bathe, you would bathe the baby last, and the water would be the most dirty. Ooh, so don't throw baby. the baby that you can't see out with the dirty water that's gross. So oh. isn't that amazing? Was that, was that a problem they were having at the time? Yeah, throwing well, out babies. It's just it was just a saying, just a warning. But what just it means checking. is is get rid of what you don't want, but make sure you don't throw what's valuable away. And so we got to be really really careful that we don't force Peter into saying that the Old Testament's bad because it's not bad. The Old Testament is good, and it reveals to us the truth of Jesus and Jesus 
came and fulfilled the law. So he has fulfilled everything in that and, and it points to him. So we, we can't get carried away here and throw away all the goodness that's in the Old Testament. We gotta make sure that we hold on to that. So what he's saying here is, is the law never could save you. Hmm. It never could. So why are you gonna put this thing that never could save anybody on them? Let's not turn them into Jews. What we need to turn them into is to Christ followers, which by the way, is the same thing we as Jews need to become. We need to be Christ followers. And that's what's so important here. And it's just amazing that Peter here gets it. He's remember how hard it was for him a couple chapters ago to go to Cornelius's house. He's like, oh no, I will never do that. I've never eaten food like that. And now he's saying, look guys, God's spoken, God's moving. The Holy Spirit blessed them in the same way he blessed us. And again, why did the Gentiles have to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the same way that the Jews did? Why is there a second, so to speak, Pentecost in the Bible? Because God has to affirm that the Gentiles are just as part of the kingdom of God as the Jews, that he didn't do something just special for the Jews, but he did it for the Gentiles as well. And so it's awesome. So the yoke, the yoke, the burden of the Old Testament can't save you, only Jesus can. Mm-hmm. So Matt talked more about that in our Acts 10 episode of the Debrief Podcast, if you want to go back and listen to it. So verse 12 says, everyone listen quietly now as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them. So this is really interesting, right? Peter, uh, the, the Pharisees have made their case. Peter has just been making his case. Now Paul and Barnabas are going and everyone is just listening quietly to each other. It's actually a pretty cool uh, moment here. Is this something we can learn from in terms of leadership disputes, relational disputes? just submitting and quietly listening to others? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I've been a pastor now for 20 years. And when I turned 40, I, I had to reevaluate my life. I, I've lost some key friendships. I've made some mistakes in my life in terms of leadership. And I said, okay, what's the next 40 years of my life going to look like? Hmm. And I came up with three L's. And the first one was, I need to learn more. Uh, the second one was, I need to love better. I need to be a better lover of people. And the third one was, the, and these are, this is the vision for the rest of my life. I need to listen. I need to be a better listener because I'm a, I'm a great talker. I am not a great listener. And so I have to work really, really hard at listening to what people have to say. And so in managing conflict, if you want something to be resolved, you need to learn to listen to what the person is saying. Um, you know, it's funny, you know, Tammy and I, I, t- I shared a little bit uh, about our fight that we had. And I'm always amazed at how, she, how, how hard it is for her to respond to an apology mid-argument. So she'll be creating her case right against me. I'll hear what she's saying. And mid argument, I say, you know what? I need to ask for forgiveness. I'm really, really sorry. And she doesn't know what to do with that because I've been listening to what she's saying and I agree. Mm-hmm. So when we argue, what are we doing? We're, we're so self-focused on presenting our case. It, it throws us off when somebody listens and goes, you know what? I was wrong. Please forgive me. And it's always funny as I watch her face and she's just like, because she assumes there's a 10 minute, you know, uh, response, present, no, there's a 10 minute presentation mm-hmm. of, of how I'm guilty of the crime, mm-hmm. but five minutes into it, I've heard her and I go, you're right. You don't need to continue for five more minutes, you know, nailing the coffin, so to speak. Cause I, I admit it, but it's just funny. People are not used to being heard. Mm-hmm. Even my own wife. I mean, that's a surprise for her. Um, and it's always funny, you know, I'll tell people, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, 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 I've heard you. And I just think we live in a world that listens so poorly. People build up their whole presentation and they're, they don't know what to do. It's like, well, I've got five more minutes of talking to do to win you over to my argument. But I'm like, yeah, but I, you already won me. Stop. So be a better listener. And I think that's just so, so important. 
if you love a person, try to listen to the person, mm. try to hear what they're saying. And, and even when, you know, I mean, there's people that have left sandals and hate me and whatever else. I, even when people are jerks, I try to listen to what they're trying to say because there's always something for me to learn. And, and I just try to listen to them. And that doesn't mean I agree, but I, I try to listen, so. Have you ever like had an experience where you've had to go and kind of go to some outside folks to have them come and listen? Oh, That's absolutely. kind of what these guys are doing here. Yeah, I, I, this is huge. And so this is what I want you to see here is that the church at Antioch can't solve this. Isn't this amazing? We, we have the healthiest church in the world at that point is Antioch. Mm -hmm. They're the healthiest church. How do we know they're the health? Because they're the only church sending missionaries out in mass, accomplishing the great commission, yeah. right? All the other churches are really self-focused. Antioch is God-focused, but they realize we can't solve this. We need to bring in outsiders. And what's interesting is, you know, Paul and Barnabas speak, Peter speaks, but James decides. And it's so important that when there's conflict, get an outside perspective. Um, I've had to do this before. I've I had conflict with staff where I'm like, look, you know, somebody by, by staff, I mean the employees of Sandals Church and they've been upset with me for something and, and we don't agree. So I've actually said this, we will go to another pastor from another church. And I've said these words, I will submit to whatever they say, hmm. whether I agree or not, I'll submit. Because I think that's what, what God wants is, God wants us to trust that he is moving, not just in our wisdom, but in the wisdom of others. And so, you know, if you're considering divorce, sit down with a pastor and, and listen to them and have an attitude of, I'm going to submit to what they say. And certainly, you know, there are cults that abuse this and manipulate people, but I don't think that's the heart of Sandals Church is we want what's best. We want what God wants. And you've got to get past your own wants, your own emotions, your own woundedness, your own brokenness. And you got to say, okay, whatever God wants on this issue. And you submit yourself to the decision because that's what Paul and Barnabas are doing here. The church of Antioch, they're submitting themselves to the decision of James. Think about that. All Christian history is in the hands of one guy right now, James. Mm -hmm. And the church trusts that he hears God, that he knows God and that he's wise. And James says, it is my judgment. Isn't that amazing? It's my judgment that we not put this burden on the Gentiles is powerful. So yeah, absolutely. Don't be ashamed. There are many, many issues where I realize I can't figure this out. And I know we have pastors from other churches that listen to this podcast. Man, the day you feel like you have to have every answer for your church or you have to have every answer for your people, man, you're, you're, you're a danger to yourself and to your church. Always be willing to ask somebody else, ask for input. Um, you know, I, Rick Warren has been a, a great tool in my life. Uh, you know, uh, Wayne Cordero has been an incredible resource. Even Greg Glory, you know, sitting under his tutelage in terms of winning people to Christ. There's just so many people that have been such a great resource for me. Why would you say no to those resources? Why would you, ex, you know, excuse yourself from the James in your life? Because we all need that. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay, so this next question comes from uh, J.T. Reed, who's a seminary professor. Yeah, here, he's brilliant. Goes to Sandals Church. And in verses 13 through 18, uh, says this, when they finished, James stood and said, brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about this time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted as it is written. And then he goes on to quote this passage from Amos. And J.T. says, so James takes this Old Testament passage and applies it to a contemporary setting. People often do this nowadays, twisting passages to justify what they want. Can we do this like James did, or has the ability to apply Old Testament passages 
passed away for us as Christians. Yeah, thank you, JT. And I, I'm humbled that you go to our church and I'm grateful that you call Sandals your home. It's just always humbling to have James the Wise in your own church. So thank you, JT, <laughs> Ooh, nice. the Wise at Sandals. Listen, that's a great question. And so here's the thing is, when you're interpreting scripture, why are you interpreting scripture the way that you are? This is why the vision of real with self is so important. People make scripture say what they want it to say. They do. Hmm. And that is sinful. So what is the basic meaning of scripture? And usually the basic meaning of scripture is far easier to conclude than people. You know, people want to say, oh, it's super complicated. Most of it's really not. It's pretty, pretty blunt, pretty straightforward. So what did the text mean to the original audience that heard it? Start there. Because if you get that wrong, you're going to certainly apply it wrong to your life. And so I think what James the Wise here does so uh, in such an incredible way is he rightly understands how Amos was using the text to communicate to the Jewish people. God is going to do something new in Israel. He's going to restore the house of Israel. And oh, by the way, it's going to include non-Jewish people. So James is saying, look, this has been God's plan all along. And oh, by the way, it's through Jesus Christ. This was his plan to include non-Jewish people. So we gotta be really, really careful um, because we can get really, really twisted when we quote a verse that says that God wants to give me the desires of my heart. Well, that's true unless the desires of your heart are whack. So, <laughs> right? Because yep. God does I think the word whack is actually Yeah, whack in is not in the scripture, but it would have been if I wrote it. So, um, <laughs> but if I wrote it, we would be in a cult. So anyways, <laughs> um, it's just really, really important that you understand what is your agenda as you're interpreting scripture, because that's where people get wrong. You can still get it wrong if your heart is to do what God wants, but it's, it's far less. It's far less likely that that's going to happen. If you're like, if you're sincerely, God, teach me your will in this instance from this verse. And I think that's what James is doing here. He's really trying to figure out what his will is. He's not trying to manipulate it at all. He doesn't have an agenda at all. Why, what's his agenda? He's Jewish. So if he was gonna manipulate it, he would make the Gentiles be circumcised, but he's not, so he doesn't. And so uh, don't look for verses that you twist to accomplish your own desires. Look for the meaning of God's desire in the verse. And that is usually completely opposite of your desire. So great mm -hmm. question, JT, thanks. So you mentioned this earlier and in verse 19 says, you know, James is saying, my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So we're talking about how James is so wise. James is the guy who's making this decision. How, how did he get to this point of authority and leadership? Where is this like authority to make the judgment coming from? Yeah, we don't know. So Luke doesn't tell us everything about the history of the church. I mean, he doesn't talk about, for example, uh, he doesn't talk about Paul's extended time in Corinth. He doesn't talk about many of the, the cities and churches that Paul plants. So this is a highlighted version of the history of the church. So he doesn't go into depths uh, talking about uh, exactly how James came to power in terms of the Jerusalem church. All we know is that he did and his words are authoritative. So for example, in Acts 15, this is probably one of the earliest known uh, passages of scripture in the New Testament because in Acts 15, they actually read the letter that James wrote. Oh, okay. It's an actual yeah. document. Luke is quoting it word for word. So this section, Acts 15, is older than the book of Acts. So think about that. So uh, Clement of Alexandria um, refers to this letter from James. It's actually amazing. So we don't have that letter anymore, but we have its contents tucked into the book of Acts. So think about this. Luke is not making this up. This is word for word, 
a letter to the church at Antioch from James and this first council. Isn't that amazing? That's really cool. It's absolutely amazing. So we don't know exactly how James arrived at the, his position. We know this, he's the half brother of Jesus. That doesn't hurt, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> can you imagine? So why is Pastor Matt, the pastor of Sandals Church? Well, he is the half brother of Jesus. That might help. True. Yeah. You don't think? No, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, think, yeah. I, think I mean, might. we think you're great as you are. Yeah, yeah. But but I am not the half brother of Jesus. No. Nope, certainly. Yeah. So that helps. He's also wise. And what's amazing about James is he holds authority with non Christians and with Christians. And so again, James surpasses the apostles because of his giftedness. And that's what we all need to, to realize. How did James get in his position of authority? Because James, or excuse me, because Peter and the apostles aren't about their authority. They're about the unique gifting of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And so God has uniquely gifted James and he's a better leader than Peter. He's a better leader than the, uh, the other 10 that are still alive. He's a better leader at this point than the apostle Paul is. He is the spokesman and he makes the decision and everybody kind of knows it. They're like, oh my gosh. So we don't know how it happened, but what's amazing is we got to give Peter credit for all the pride that he struggled with in the gospels. Mm -hmm. He seems to have matured and he gets out of the way. And you know, Peter still speaks. He still has authority, mm -hmm. but he renders the decision to James. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. So the decision that James makes is here in verses 20 through 21. And he says, instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals and from consuming blood. So there's four things that James just listed off there. Why does he land on those four specific things? Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, James strikes a compromise. We talked about this and many Christians think the word compromise is a cuss word, but it's the reality of living in the world. So we're not gonna compromise how a person is saved. That's non-negotiable. A person is saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. There is no way that a person can be saved in any other way. However, Gentiles in your freedom, you don't just get to offend Jews. You don't have, you know, carte blanche permission to be offensive and you need to realize that the church is more than just you. And every Christian needs to deal with this. Your small group isn't just about you. Your church isn't just about you. There are other people present and you need to be aware of this. So he picks out four specific things. Really three have to do with social, social issues and how to react. They all revolve around eating. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is, is where did you buy your meat for the barbecue? Okay, mm -hmm. don't, don't buy it at the local pagan store where it's sacrificed to you know, some pagan God, because that's offensive to Jews. So yeah. you're gonna need to shop um, at a different grocery store. And think about even today, Jews have their own grocery stores, even today, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Is It'll say it's a kosher store. So even today, the way Jews eat is something that's very, very important to their culture. So if I was gonna have a Jewish person over to my house for dinner, where do I need to shop? Mm -hmm. At the kosher deli, so that I don't offend them, so I can share the love of Christ. So even today, this principle you know, carries. So don't eat uh, meat sacrificed to idols. Don't eat meat that is strangled. Mm -hmm. And so that was a process in which an animal would be strangled, keeping the blood inside the animal. And for Jews, uh, the blood is something that's very, very precious and special to them. So think about Jesus, his blood on the cross. Like the blood is the is where the life of the person is. And so that was extremely uh, precious to them. It's why the blood of the animal that is sacrificed is thrown on the altar. So it's this deep connection with um the reality of life within animals and us. And so it's interesting that Jews are almost like American Indians in this way. Like you kill animals, but you have a healthy respect for them. Right. And mm -hmm. you see a correlation between 
you know, your nature that you share with God and your nature that you share with animals. And so you are to not be inhumane or cruel in the way that you kill them. And the last one's just gross, right? Don't drink blood. And you think about like vampires, you know, what are vampires? You know, they're this medieval creature that's invented. And how does a vampire live? A vampire is dead, but it lives off the blood of others. And so drinking of blood has always been this cultish, you know, ritualized process where, uh, human beings engage in darkness. You know, think about drinking blood, right? Well, a lot of Gentiles did that for blessings, for rituals, for, you know, participation in their things. And this would make, I mean, a Jew would freak out. So you don't do this. So just like we, all three of us have been to India. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been to Mumbai. Mumbai, in the state of Mumbai, beef is illegal. You can't have beef. You know, you don't invite people over for uh, steak, beef ribs, right? You don't do that because it, it's, you're going to cause a stumbling block for the Gentile that's just not appropriate. And we need to think about this as Christians. You know, if I have somebody over um, to my house and they believe that you shouldn't drink, like I, I, I wouldn't serve alcohol. I wouldn't use my freedom to offend them. I wouldn't do that. I also need to be mindful if I have an alcoholic in my small group, we mm-hmm. need to not be serving alcohol. Yeah. We need to not do this. Just like, you know, don't serve, you know, 10 layer cake from claim jumper. If you got somebody with diabetes in there, you're going to kill them. <laughs> you need to be aware that what you're doing could cause that person to stumble. So we need to be very, very careful in the way that we relate to each other. It's not just about you. Mm. It's about the kingdom. And the last one, which, um, you know, I hope to write a book on the, on the issue of, of sex is sex matters. It's, so it's interesting that first three are social. And then this net last one's moral. Mm. Don't, operate sexually like Gentiles do. And it's interesting. It's the same thing God tells the Israelites when they come out of Egypt, don't behave sexually like the Egyptians. And so uh, the word here for sexual immorality is the word pornea, which is where we get the English word pornography. And so it doesn't just mean looking at visual things. Pornea is a word that means all sex outside the context of heterosexual sex between a husband and wife in the context of marriage. So everything outside of that, he says, don't do that. So that would include bestiality, sleeping with animals. Uh, it would include homosexual sex. It would include uh, fornication, sex before marriage. It would include, you know, everything, marrying your sister, like all kinds of things. So Leviticus 17 and 18 gives us these lists of things that we can't participate in sexually. And so for Jews, one of, one of the main ways that they considered themselves different from the world was the way in which they participated in sex. And that's why we need to understand that today, what we do with our bodies still matters. Mm-hmm. So even though we're Gentiles, and that's what people say, well, that was the Old Testament, right? And the Old Testament you know, also talked about you know, killing people for doing these certain things. James is making the point that the sexual morals of the Old Testament still carry over to the New Testament. And what does Paul hammer on in book after book after book? Your body was not made for sexual immorality. It was made for the Lord. Over and over and over again, Paul deals with this issue. And it's amazing today. What are churches compromising on today? Sexual practice. Mm-hmm. Because culture's changed. And that's unfortunate, Said That was a really long answer. Yeah, I just was thinking about that last one, just in terms of setting us apart, even in today's context and culture, especially as we move further away from, like here in the United States, being a, a culture that primarily focuses and practices like typical Judeo-Christian values, um, practicing your sexuality in a way that's different in the way that the Bible teaches really does have a pretty profound impact on 
separating you from the rest of culture, you know, or. Yeah. And I, and I think we've completely lost it. Like I picked my son up from junior high and, and every day when I pick him up, there's this little Muslim gal and she's so cute. You know, she has her a Muslim outfit on and I'm so proud of her that she is committed or, or her parents are committed to her faith and she dresses a certain way. And then I look at Christian girls and we dress like we, I'm not a Christian girl, but Christian <laughs> girls dress like complete pagans. Like, you know, I'm on Instagram and, and sometimes, you know, our Instagram or, or uh, Twitter, and I'll be going back and forth with a woman that goes from our church and her selfie, there's more cleavage than there is of her face. Mm-hmm. And it's like, look, your, your religious connection to Jesus needs to affect and impact the way that you present yourself. And the world says that you're a sexual object. Jesus says you're a sister in Christ and you need to dress in a way that's appropriate. And guys, we need to do the same thing. It's not as intense because women you know, are just not as you know, enthralled with the way that we look, which I'm always <laughs> deeply saddened. Every time I take my shirt off in front of my wife, she's not impressed. So I wish that she would be impressed. I have no comment. <laughs> she's going to kill me if I said that. Sorry. Sorry. Tammy. I love you, Tammy, but you need to be more impressed with my muscles. Uh, so after this in verses 22 to 29, it says that the apostles and elders together with the whole church in Jerusalem chose delegates and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas also called Barsabbas and Silas. Now they're introducing Silas here. Does he end up being a pretty major player later? I feel like I've heard his name before. Yeah, he's a genius. So he mm-hmm. writes first Peter for Peter. Um, and, and Peter tells us that, that Sylvanus helped him write the letter. Um, he is a partner with the apostle Paul in several Hold letters. So, so Venus, oh, yeah. you're sorry. saying something that's a, that's where vampires are from. Yeah. yeah. I'm connecting the dots. Going back so, to vampires so Silas here. is the Greek name. Uh, Sylvanus is the Latin. Mm-hmm. And oh. I think the English form is Sylvester. I'm not sure about that. But yeah, names change, you know, as they, they adopt new languages and they keep the old name. So his name is Silas, but it's also Sylvanus. So it's just, it's I just, just a Latin Silas, form. buddy. Stick with that one. It sounds yeah, yeah. I like Sylvanus. Well, you don't like that? Have fun with that. Yeah. Sorry, Sylvanus. The older translations will say Sylvanus, some mm, of them, but Silas. Um, yeah, he becomes a major, major deal and he becomes a partner with the apostle Paul. And the Bible says he's a prophet. So pretty powerful. Yeah, good. Okay, so then we actually get the, the, the snippet of the letter that James writes and Silas and Judas here are the guys that deliver that letter. Why do they send both a letter and the people? What's, what's that about? Because how do you know that they just didn't write the letter themselves? Okay. Yeah. Yes. So Silas is a validation because where is he from? He's from the Jerusalem church. So he is a prophet from the Jerusalem church validating that this letter is authentic. And so again, to all you Bible haters out there, I want you to notice how far they go to make sure that people understand that this is authentically the communication from the church because the only way that we know that Jesus Christ was crucified is because of the scriptures and their authenticity. And so notice here that they don't just send a letter, but they send witnesses from the letter and leaders from the church to say, this is in fact what took place. And we want you guys to know that. And again, why did Paul write Acts and Luke? So that we may know Mm -hmm. in the one in whom we have believed. So he wants us to be validated in our faith that this is not just some made up letter, that this is real. Oh, that's cool. So in verses 30 to 31, it says, they went at once to Antioch where they called a general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. There was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. Now I can only imagine how excited these guys must be that they don't have to become Jews in the way they thought they were gonna have to become yes. Jews. So how Put can we- Put away the Flint rocks. 
Did you hear that evil laugh? All women have an evil <laughs> laugh when you talk about circumcision. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it sucks for you guys. <laughs> but um, so we're not going and sharing the gospel to Jews anymore. We're sharing to different cultures, you know, tribes in Africa or Hindus in India. How do we go about sharing the gospel and making sure that we're not asking people to change everything culturally to become Christians? Yeah, well, there are organizations that are focused on reaching Jews, Jews for Jesus. There are all kinds of missions to Jewish people. Uh, we even have some people from our church in Israel that are there sharing the gospel with their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. So that is happening, but your question is right. Whenever we go to a new culture, we have to make sure that we don't impart our sandals culture on them in a culture that it doesn't work. And so we gotta be really, really careful that we look at what are the non-negotiables? What are the things that we can't compromise on? There's one God. The only way to be right with that one God is through his son, Jesus Christ. How do we get to know Jesus Christ through the scriptures that we have? And those are the things that we give them. So they can change you know, within their context. And we need to make sure that we don't force them to be like us. And so like missionaries from hundred years ago, you go to Hawaii, everybody's naked. What do you do? You put them in wool suits and make them sit uncomfortably in a stone built sanctuary without air conditioning. Cause that's what Jesus would want, right? <laughs> it's just like absolutely ridiculous. Like I can't even go to the old churches in Hawaii cause they're literally built of lava rock. Do you know what lava rock does? Holds heat. It holds heat and radiates it. Mm. That's what they built churches out of because they're morons, but um, <laughs> they're beautiful to look at, just don't go to worship in them. And so what, what's so sad is, and then they wonder why, you know, all the Hawaiians turn from their faith because they tried to turn Hawaiians into English people. Right. You know, and, that's, that's ridiculous. Hawaiians are laid back people. English are pretty uptight. That's just the way that it is. That's just their cultures. I love English culture, but it's uptight. So we got to make sure that we don't transpose or transfix our culture onto them. You know, even like when I go to the South, you know, like I'm writing a book with Lifeway and it's centered in uh, Tennessee in the South. The South is very different culturally than Sandals Church. And I don't need to bring Southern California to the South. I need to let people from the South be people from the South and, and to enjoy their culture we got to go back to what are the non-negotiables. So when you're talking to a Hindu friend, a Buddhist friend, uh, a non-Christian friend from all kinds of different cultures, you need to let them know that God loves their culture. God loves their people, their language, their history. All of those things are amazing, but the only way that they can be reconciled to him is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. And so we got to make sure that we do that. And so really this decision is what allows the church to explode in a good way. And it takes over literally in a couple hundred years, the entire Roman empire. Okay, so we have one last question, and I think it's maybe uh, really, really important here. Um, verses 36 through 41 are, I think, the only part of the chapter you didn't really cover through in your message this last weekend. It says, after some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of God to see how the new believers are doing. Barnabas agreed and wanted to, t wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. So um, this whole sermon that you had this last weekend was on how to deal with conflict, yet we didn't cover this part. Is there some lesson to learn about conflict here from what's going on between Paul and yeah, Barnabas? Yeah, I covered one part of it. And so that was when Paul and Barnabas disagreed so vehemently they went their own oh, way. Yeah. So I did, I did cover that. Uh, what was your question? Is there a lesson to learn here on this? Yeah, th here's the lesson that even good people get it wrong. Mm. Even godly people get it wrong. And we need to have grace um, for our pastors. That includes me. We need to have grace for our husbands and our wives, for our friends, for our community groups, because no one is going to get it right all the time. Even the guy who wrote half the New Testament had a moment where his anger got the best of him. 
And he, he was ticked and he may have been right. He may, he may have been right. And, and this is why I say all the time at Sandals, you can be right and still be wrong. He could have been right that John Mark shouldn't have come because he bailed on him. So mm-hmm. there's, a, there's several, you know, thousand um, manuscripts. The Western text, it's called the Western text. It's pretty harsh on Mark. Mm-hmm. And so it adds because he abandoned them. Mm-hmm. And so it's not included in the scriptures, but those in the West, and that would be the Roman manuscripts, the Roman Catholic manuscripts, they were pretty harsh on Mark. And they mm-hmm. agreed with Paul that this shouldn't have been done. And, and, you know, I used to agree with Paul. As I look back, the reality is, I wish Paul and Barnabas could have figured it out. They were the dynamic team. We don't know what Barnabas does. All we know is that he goes to Cyprus and then we don't hear from him. And the apostle Paul doesn't get get to go back to Cyprus to talk to those people, but he takes Silas all these other ways. Here's the good news. God is still good. And basically what happens is we have two missionary movements instead of one. So God is still glorified, but it's sad that sometimes God has to move in spite of us to accomplish his mission and his purpose. And so we just have to be very, very careful. I will disappoint you. Pastors will disappoint you. You will get upset. We will blow it. We will make mistakes. Don't get so angry that you go your own way. Always have grace, even for church leadership. I meet people all the time. Why don't you go to church? And they'll talk about some decision a pastor made, something they said or something they did and they bail. Mm. And it's so sad to me that people don't have grace for leaders. So in this chapter, Paul and Barnabas get it right, right? They go through a process, they submit to James' decision, and then right afterwards, they blow it. And I don't know about you guys, but I've had days like that where I'm like holy all day and then totally blow it, man. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't even know if I believe in God based upon my behavior. Mm-hmm. We, you have to have grace for yourself. You have to be like, okay, I blew it. I made a mistake and I was wrong. Now, eventually, Paul and Barnabas and Mark will be reconciled. Paul actually writes a letter and asks for John and Mark to come back to him. So at some point they figure this thing out, but in the moment tempers flared and anger won and it's sad. And we need to make sure that we realize that whenever we lose control of our anger, we lose relationships. And that happens in marriage, friendships, and in churches. It happens all over the place. And when anger wins, the devil wins. And we can't let that happen. We need to humble ourselves and do the right thing. And just say, look, man, you know, cause they could have said, Hey, we just disagree. Let's pray over each other in our go our own ways. That's not what happened. They got so mad. They just split. And that's, that's not God's will. Yeah. So and, you're saying that them going their own way isn't necessarily the problem. It's that they got so angry with each other and their disagreement was really- Well, cause sometimes we're not going to agree. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. Sometimes you're not going to be able to come. I mean, cause you can't compromise. Do we take half of Mark? Do we cut them in <laughs> half? Do we take part of Mark? You, you can't do those things. It's, it's, it's a yes or no question. And so on those issues, you got to figure it out. And so- I think God's will in this moment would have been, look, okay, we don't agree, but we still love each other and we're committed to this cause. Let's go separately. But they couldn't get there because you had two very, very powerful guys entrenched in their positions and they would not budge. And it's sad. It's absolutely sad, but God was still good. We still all got saved and God moved in spite of it. But we all need to be very, very cautious of how our anger can cause us to do crazy sinful things. Yeah, the thing that's interesting to me about that is that at the beginning of the chapter, uh, when they're kind of successful relationally, is when they're working together on the same page, trying to accomplish something. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wonder if that can be uh, just a relational strategy for some of us who might be struggling with conflicts or even some of the questions that people wrote in today. I wonder if just the idea of looking for areas of common ground where we can work on things together. Yeah, Hmm. I think that's great. 
Cool. Well, good stuff, man. We absolutely love this. Next week, we're going to be jumping into Acts chapter 16. And of course, hopefully taking way more of your questions. We absolutely love that. So if you want to hit us up on Facebook, find the Debrief podcast over there, send us a message, get them in here. Uh, or you can always go to sandalschurch.com slash the debrief, click the big red button to uh, ask a question. The other thing that would be super awesome, we always love is when you guys help us out and support the show by buying one of those Debrief t-shirts and or stickers when you're mm-hmm. at your campus on the weekends. If you want to do that, uh, we would super appreciate it. And in response, I promise next week, just like this week, we will drop you out of this show with some sweet inspirational magic from our friend, Stephanie Keen. Stephanie, you got something good for us to I sure uh, get do. past Matt's thoughts on? Okay. Uh, so this week's inspirational quote, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. Yeah, Whoa. that is not my deepest fear. That's my Whoa. deepest wish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh.